Uh, it's sort of a sad occasion on one respect in that we come to the close of our study of the book of Hebrews. But when you think about what we're about to study together, some really good exciting stuff. So we get to the, the final portion that we'll be looking at is uh, in our series. Uh, much appreciation to Richard and Ramon and for Tim and helping make this very enjoyable study for me. Uh, it's always good when I have a chance to prepare, but uh, I trust that you have been blessed through the study and as we draw to an end today, this particular study, there will be a couple of opportunities that, uh, Lord willing, in the near future, we will be sort of going back to some uh, particular passages to focus on some really important truths. Uh, but we've tried over the past several months uh, to give you a really good overview of this very important book, uh, a book that explains so much uh, in a New Testament world of the Old Testament truths about the same person as Richard was even mentioning earlier today. It's all about Jesus. And the book of Hebrews makes it so much clearer as to who Jesus Christ not only is presented in the New Testament, but how that relates to how Jesus Christ, even though unnamed in the Old Testament, of the Savior, the chosen one that God would provide to save his people from their sins. So as we look at Hebrews chapter 12 today, uh, let's begin by just reminding ourselves of, of a statement that somehow puts it together. It's not a complete perfect statement, but it's at least one, hopefully, that you can kind of take with you as you think about the book of Hebrews, in which we're, we're instructed uh, that our unwavering faith in the completed and satisfying work of Jesus will see us endure all things until we receive our eternal reward in Christ. Now, we've shared that a number of times over the past several months, but hopefully as you think back over the number of sermons, uh, even all the way just last week, uh, in which Richard did a really great job uh, explaining how we are to endure in our service for Jesus Christ in our faith, that this statement sort of kind of brings together the truths, and it reminds you uh, about our unwavering faith as we think about chapter 11 of all of these individuals that we're given examples of, of how they demonstrated their faith. But their faith was not just in something whimsical. It wasn't in a hope so, but it was in something very complete. Their, their faith was in the completed and satisfying work of Jesus Christ. Even those who lived before Jesus Christ was born, their faith was in what Jesus Christ would accomplish. It wasn't hoping that they would live righteously and, and God would somehow find favor but they were believing that God was going to provide for them just as we look back at the provision for our sin. And that completed and satisfying work of Jesus Christ, when we place our faith in that, that will see us endure. Even through the suffering and the tribulations that come through being a believer in Jesus Christ, and we'll do so, we'll persevere, knowing that Jesus Christ and what He has done has changed us until we receive our eternal reward. And we think back in chapter uh, 10 and 11 where this is kind of pictured uh, with Abraham and that city he was looking forward to by faith. And even as we'll look here in this particular passage at the end of chapter 12 today. But that reward is in Christ. That isn't a reward that we're somehow going to get something tangible, something material that's going to make this life worth living. Jesus Christ is that reward. 
And we're ultimately going to one day live within the presence of Him perfectly. That's what we're looking at today. Chapter 12. Let's pray and ask God for help. Father, it is not a light thing for us to consider your word. And it is certainly not an easy thing for us to consider the application or the power that your word possesses. So Father, I just want to continue praying and remind these wonderful folks that are here today that we are in desperate need of your Holy Spirit who inspired these words originally to teach us today. There's nothing that I can say, there's no clever way that I can put it that will ever, ever do justice to your word. So Father, I pray that your spirit would teach us. I pray that we would have eyes opened so that we can understand. I pray that you'd help us to have ears open that we may hear even to the point of obedience in placing our faith and our trust in your word because of what it tells us and reveals to us about you through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Before we look at this passage of scripture, we have to do over the past, there have been times in our study where we've had a message that literally went back to a certain passage of scripture in the Old Testament to kind of give us some context, some historical setting about what the writer of Hebrews was addressing at the time. Well, today, since I figured you're used to about an hour and a half, I'm going to just do it all in one message today. Uh, and uh, it may not take an hour and a half. Of course, most of you won't be here long enough to notice if I go that long, because probably at a certain time you'll be on your way. But what I'd like for us to do is just consider, uh, and you can turn if you'd like to Exodus chapter 19. Uh, but you're probably familiar with this passage of Scripture, knowing that this is shortly after God has led his people Israel out of the, the nation of Egypt, out of bondage, and he's leading them towards the promised land. And as they're making their way through the wilderness, they've already had a couple of tests, they've already had a couple of trying times, uh, but now God is leading them to, to Mount Sinai. Uh, in Exodus chapter 19, verse 4, God says to Moses, the leader of those who were being brought out of Egypt, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So this is the message that God gives Moses to go back while he is meeting with God on Mount Sinai in the wilderness. And he says, now you go and tell the people that I'm ready to, 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 to make them my people, even though he has already chosen them through Abraham. That was a promise that was made way back in Genesis chapter 15. But now that he's brought them out of Egypt, out of that slavery to Pharaoh, now, as you may recall, back when we were studying the Old Testament survey, now he's bringing them into a slavery to himself or a service to himself. In other words, God didn't free Israel uh, from Pharaoh just so they could do what they wanted to and be entrepreneurs and just live life as they found best for them. He brought them out of Egypt, out of that servitude, so that they could now, through the liberty that comes only through Jesus Christ and the Spirit, to serve Him, as we are all created to do. 
And that is the same picture that we have in our lives as we're saved out of the bondage of sin. It's not so that, as Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, not so that we can feel the lust of the flesh or to serve you know, the things that we want to do. God has redeemed us and given us liberty so that we can now serve Him as we love other people. So with that in mind, Moses comes down. Now in verse 18... Here's the picture, and I want you to kind of compare this. I thought it was kind of appropriate. The Lord provided some fog today. Uh, not that it would make it unsafe for you to drive, but it kind of gives you an impression that maybe there was some smoke around. Hopefully there wasn't any smoke, if that would mean something was on fire. But hopefully it was just fog. But in verse 18 of chapter 19 of Exodus, now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke. Now the reason why wasn't because there was a lot of humidity in the air, the dew point was at the right level, but it was because the Lord had descended on it in fire. Now, unless you're a hero or a fireman, how many of you would have approached Cornerstone Baptist Church building here on this property if it was encompassed with smoke? If you did, again, you would do it with caution, and we hope Pastor Charlie's already made his way in here, already called the fire department, so we can just kind of wait over there at Town City Diner, maybe have lunch, and then just sort of go home from there. But you have to remember, God's presence was a little bit different than what, anything that we're used to. As they were approaching Mount Sinai, it was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like a smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. Number two, if the parking lot was trembling, how many of you would have continued to find a nice straight line to park your car next to? Probably would have been a little cautious. Once again, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. In other words, there was a loud noise coming from this place. But it was in that Moses spoke and God answered him in that thunder. Approaching God in Moses' day was much different than anything we've known. But nonetheless, that is how God made his presence real to Moses. And with that background, the writer of Hebrews says in verse 18, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and a sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. In Moses' day, it was a fearful thing to be in the presence of God. In Moses' day, it was clearly understood in physical terms. The ground shook. There was a fire that descended upon a mountain causing it to be filled with smoke so that you couldn't see it. There were noises going on and, and words coming out to the point where, please, stop! That's not much different than it is today. You may recall Tim in one of his messages kind of summed up the story with our life. We need to be near God. But it is a fearful thing. It is a scary thing. It is a deadly thing to be near God. And the children of Israel got physical demonstrations of why it was so fearful. They couldn't go near 
If you go back to Exodus chapter 20, verse 18, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. And they told Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us because we'll die. They understood how serious it was to be in the presence of God. Unfortunately for them, not enough. They would quickly forget just how terrible and how fearful God in his presence is. But at this point, as Moses was about to receive the law, the Ten Commandments, it was a fearful thing. Back in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 20, for they could not endure the order that was given. That order specifically was, even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. It's a scary thing. Not quite on the same level, but I remember when I was in the fourth grade. I was going to a school that was newly constructed and it required me to go to a different school than I was anticipating as a third grader. You know, in the third grade, you're really worried about where you're going to go to school in the fourth grade. You're more worried about why can't the summer last a little longer so I don't even have to go back to school. But I remember going to this new school, this new environment, in an area of the county where I wasn't very familiar with, even though it wasn't that far away from where I lived. And Mr. Blair was the principal. Mr. Blair had to have been seven and a half feet tall, 450 pounds, or at least to a four foot eight inch fourth grader, which I thought I was pretty tall, you know, for my age. But Mr. Blair was towering. He was the principal. I can see it now. He had salt and pepper hair, wore glasses that, back in those days, back in the 70s. You know, it used to be kind of cool to have the, uh, the shaded glasses, you know, so when you went out in the sun, you didn't have to put your sunglasses on. He wore those. And his voice, I mean, he had to smoke like a train because, I mean, his voice was, I mean, it was so deep. Of course, you could also see him when he went out of his office. That's where he went. But his voice was so deep. And for me, a skinny little boy, not being familiar with the surroundings, that's all I needed was an imposing figure. I did not want to go close to his office. I never wanted anybody to mention my name in the same sentence with his name. I didn't want anybody even to point and say, if you get in trouble, I knew. You don't have to say the rest of it. I thought that things might get easier, but when I got to high school, my principal was about the same size. I don't know what it was. But it was very intimidating, and it was, even though he was there for my security, even though he was there for my guidance, even though he was there for my protection, even though he was there to ensure that I got educated uh, the way that the school system was given to educate me, even though there were things he was given, that's not what I was thinking about. If I had a hall pass to go to the restroom and he was coming the other way, I didn't even want to go near him. But the same type of reverence and, and, and fear and respect and awe that Moses and the children of Israel exuded for God is the same type of fear that I had as that little boy. I, I didn't understand. I was just afraid. From what I physically was able to see and hear and anticipate. 
But the book of Hebrews helps us solve that problem. Because not only do we need to be near God, not only do we need to be with God, not only is it true that it is a deadly thing to be near God, we have access. Verse 22, I love conjunctions. Not just because it reminds me of that Conjunction function or junction, what's your function, whatever it was. Uh, the you know, power is not. When I was a kid, cartoons, some of you may not even have a clue what I'm talking about. But here we have a conjunction. It says, but. Here's the children of Israel. They're approaching a mountain that even if a wild beast were to accidentally run into it, you would need to stone it because it was a intruding on holy ground. But us, but you have come to Mount Zion. That was Mount Sinai. You've come to Mount Zion. Mount Zion into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, into innumerable angels in festal gathering. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That should thrill our souls today. To know that we're coming to a mountain that Paul used in Galatians chapter 4. He spoke of it in terms of Saren and Hagar. You may recall these are mothers of Abraham's children, one Ishmael and one Isaac. One was a labor of the flesh, one that they were trying to manipulate and to construct for themselves and to fulfill the promise themselves, thinking, well, we're too old, we can't have any children, so we must use Hagar. That's the work of the flesh. That's Sinai. But Paul says, there's another that we are the spiritual descendants of Abraham because we come to another mountain. And he was speaking of Jerusalem, spiritually speaking, about how it is through faith that God is going to fulfill his promise. Not through the works of the flesh. And it's important for us to remember that, again, the book of Hebrews is written to Hebrews. Those who have a, an understanding of the Jewish system, an understanding that through all of these sacrifices we make atonement before God and we shed the blood of all of these animals. Why? So that we can approach God in prayer. So that we can approach God in our life. So that we can be presentable to God. And through all of these endless, seemingly endless sacrifices being made year after year after year, the flesh gains you nothing. It's just simply what? A picture of what God will fulfill for us, knowing that we are incapable of attaining any righteousness in our own works, regardless of how many sacrifices we offer. That there had to be a different mountain. There had to be a different place for our faith to rest. So that as we sing, our faith has found a resting place. Not in device or creed. I trust the ever-living one. 
That's who we place our faith in. That's why we sing these songs is because we found a different mountain. A mountain that Psalm 133 indicates that God has chosen for Himself to dwell. Psalm 133 is a psalm written by one who is anticipating, whether it be David or Solomon or somewhere in the mix, anticipating the temple being built. And the psalmist goes back and he scratches his head thinking, I can't even sleep at night until I can figure out how we can... I'm not going to step foot in the tabernacle until I've figured out where God is going to reside. (laughs) And God says, I've got the answer for you guys. The Lord has chosen Zion, desired it for His habitation. This is my resting place forever. I will dwell... Because I have desired it. He wasn't speaking about a structure being built over in Jerusalem that people are fighting over today, the the foundations for. He was speaking of something much greater. He was speaking of Mount Zion, the spiritual heavenly place that God will dwell and we will dwell with Him forever. This is where we have come to. The heavenly Jerusalem where there are angels beyond count. In festal gathering, celebration, party, into the assembly of the firstborn, those who are in Christ, who are enrolled in heaven. I love that, enrolled in heaven. I'm enrolled. I haven't started there yet, but I'm enrolled. My name is on the roll, it's been written down. My name is there. And to God, the judge of all, We were reading from Isaiah 59 earlier. The God who judges all will be there. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That's why I can stand to be there. If it was on my own, I'm still over here at Mount Sinai trying to work myself silly to to earn my way. But because I have been made perfect through Christ... I'm not afraid to stand before the God who judges all. Because He has taken all that I am worthy to be judged of and He placed it on the shoulders of Jesus Christ when He died for me on the cross and it is through Him that my sins were atoned for. Jesus Himself, the mediator of this new covenant, the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, All of this is where we are as believers in Jesus Christ. We're not at this mountain where we can't even touch it. We're at this mountain where we have obtained an enrollment into the new Jerusalem, the, the city of God. Remember the old hymn? We're marching to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion. The beautiful city of gold. That's what we're thinking about. That's what Isaac Watts was writing about when he penned that hymn. Because there's something for us to look forward to in Christ. This is the eternal reward that will enable us to endure all things. Because we know we have a heavenly city of God that He dwells in forever and we with Him if we are in Christ. But this wonderful truth requires yet another warning. Number five if you're counting. Verse 25. This is where information can be very dangerous. 
This is why when we looked at Hebrews chapter 6, it's very important for us to understand. We should, chapter 5 and chapter 6, we should be teachers. We should not be dull of hearing. For it says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Now over here at Mount Sinai, you are running for your life as soon as the noise started. As soon as you saw the thunder and the lightning, as soon as you saw the fire descend, as soon as you saw the smoke, you were like, I'm getting away from this. Well, he's offered us Mount Zion through Christ. And the voice of him speaking here makes sure. Please hear this. Make sure that you don't refuse it. It is a dangerous thing to hear the truth of the gospel and refuse it. How do I know that? For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on the earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. Remember reading about those, and the writer of Hebrews reminds us of it earlier in the book. Remember those who were in exile, that are not in exile, but in the Exodus, making their way from Egypt into the promised land, and some of them didn't make it. Why? Because of the heart of unbelief. They were dull of hearing. Their faith was not complete. So as you think about the wonderful reward that Jesus Christ is and all that he offers you through the forgiveness of your sins and through the promise of eternal life and the life that is abundant and free and productive in this world of sin. See that you don't refuse him. See that you take it seriously. See that you cling to it. At that time, Mount Sinai... Verse 26, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yes, once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. There's coming a day that's much worse than anything that the children of Israel ever experienced out in the wilderness at Mount Sinai. There's coming a day when God is going to shake the heavens and the earth. There's coming a day when he's going to get rid of this heaven and earth and create a new one. The writer of Hebrews reminds us this phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So let me ask you this morning. Are you listening? If you're listening this morning, are you refusing him? Or are you rejoicing in it? Have you, are you clinging with every strand of faith and hope in your being to the completed and satisfying work of Jesus Christ, lest you fall short. Eternity is a long time to reflect on the things that you've heard and the things that you never accepted. Eternity is a long time for you to consider the things that you have rejected out of your own selfish desire to live on your own, to pursue the things of this world. Do not refuse him today. The word of God beckons you. Do not refuse him who is speaking. Now with that in mind, therefore, having set the stage, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. 
thus let us offer to God acceptable worship. Same word that we find in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. That is our reasonable service. That's our reasonable worship. Same word. Let's do so with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. God doesn't lighten up just simply because we're his children. God doesn't say, okay, now you're saved, now I'll be nice to you, and I'll overlook all the things that you do wrong. No, God is still a consuming fire. He says that we can boldly approach the throne of grace because we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is standing in our place. So that that consuming fire does not encroach upon our trust and our dependence upon him. Now, if you're outside of Christ, you've got every reason in the world to be concerned about that. But because God is a consuming fire, but he has offered to us an unshakable kingdom, not the one that Mount Sinai offered us, but the one that new, the city of Zion offers us, let's serve him out of gratitude. Now, at Mount Sinai, there are lots of things given to say, okay, this is how we're going to serve God. This is what we're not going to touch. This is what we're not going to eat. This is not what we're going to have. This is not what we're going to do. This is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it. All of these rules and regulations. And you may feel like your own life is just full of rules and regulations. And then perhaps someone tells you about Jesus and say, okay, I want to be saved because I want to get rid of all those rules and regulations because I'm on my way to heaven. It doesn't matter. Wrong. Because if you have a kingdom that's unshakable, then you will be stirred and motivated to serve him out of gratitude for receiving such a kingdom. And you may be saying, Mark, well, how do I do that? What does that look like? Well, don't ask me. Ask the writer of Hebrews because he gives us. Interestingly enough, now I have to be careful. That when I come, when I'm thinking about something that I haven't read, two things bother me. One, I realize I don't read enough, and there may be actually something out there. Or number two, I might be just barking up the wrong tree. But I found it very interesting that when we consider these two mountains, one Mount Sinai where we receive the Ten Commandments, that in this passage of Scripture where we are considering this new city, this city of Z this Mount Zion. I may be bad at math, but I count ten different areas in which we serve God out of gratitude. Now, please don't misunderstand. I'm not suggesting that these are a replacement for the commandments. The Ten Commandments still reflect the holiness of God, and we should live according to them out of gratitude. But I think it's very helpful, as we look at the rest of this passage, that there are at least ten things that our service should look like. As we are grateful for this Shake, unshakable kingdom that is Mount Zion. Let's quickly look at them. The first one in chapter 13, verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. That seems normal, right? Unless you've been in church longer than three weeks. Then you get concerned, thinking, oh my. This is the very first thing he mentions moral directions as it is labeled in my study Bible here. Uh, but number one is let brotherly love continue. Well, in some cases you're like, well, let brotherly love start. 
And maybe we'll get on a roll and it will continue after that. But this is how we serve God. We love our brother. We demonstrate love to our brother. And we let it keep on being shown. The second thing that he says in chapter 13 of how we are able to acceptably worship or serve God with reverence and all is do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. People that you don't know, treat them well. Treat them graciously. You never know. Maybe like uh, the CEO of the company that I work for may mention that he learned this lesson early on because there was a gentleman in the office that he worked in that was uh, one of the maintenance crew there in just a building. But it wasn't long after that that this particular person became a management person over the department where he worked. And he was thankful that at that time, man, I'm glad I treated him with respect. I didn't just look, oh, this is just a maintenance person over here. I'm just going to kind of disregard him. He actually, you know, it turned out that his being gracious and kind to him early on, not knowing where he would end up, actually turned out to be a good thing. Now, that selfish motivation. The scriptures are just simply saying, God's been more than gracious to you and you didn't even want anything to do with him. So what should we do? Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. And there's some motivation here, which I don't think it's the driving point, but at the same time, it's an interesting point that the Holy Spirit decided to include. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now, to be careful because, you know what, I always wanted to, to know when there was an angel around, so I'm just going to treat everybody nicely because I, I hope I'll get to see one. Or you might be thinking, well, this is the guy who has the flat tire out in the middle of the desert. Nobody else is around, and all somebody shows up, helps fix his tire. He looks around to pay him 20 bucks for his help, and nobody's there. That must have been an angel. We don't know anything about that. Not denying anything like that happens. I'm just, it never happened to me yet that I know of. But then again, who knows? It could have been an angel that I wasn't aware of. That's not the point. The point is to treat strangers who may be an angel. Serving. Remember those, number three, those who are in prison. Now, there are many prison ministries, and this is not to say anything about that, but let's be sure, uh, since you are also in the body, is referring, I believe, specifically in this passage, to remember those brothers and sisters in Christ who are in prison. There's already been an allusion made to this back in chapter 10, Right? Remember those who are in prison as though you're in prison with them. And those who are mistreated, remember them. When was the last time that you prayed for the brothers and sisters you don't even know on the other side of the world that are sitting in a prison? Perhaps you didn't know you had brothers and sisters on the other side of the world that were in prison because of their faith. Perhaps that would be an opportunity for you to say, number three, the way I'm going to serve God, I'm going to learn how many people that are claiming to believe, be believers, they're in prison. I want to pray for them. I'm going to remember them. I want to send some financial support so maybe some other people can help them. Now if you think that number two is interesting because, well, I'm going to entertain a stranger, therefore, or I'm going to be nice to strangers because I may be entertaining angels, well, this one was really going to grab you because if you are helping those in prison, you're not just entertaining angels, 
You're assisting Christ himself. How do I know that? Because in Matthew chapter 25, in a very interesting passage of Scripture where Jesus is talking about the day of judgment in which there will be a separation between those who are truly believers and those who are not. You know the way that he describes those people? He says that there are some people who are feeding and clothing and visiting in prison. And Jesus is going to say to them, you know what, you were feeding and clothing and visiting me. And they say, wait a minute, Jesus, where were you at? And he said, even where my people are, there I am too. However, on the flip side of that coin, he said, for those who said, we didn't visit anybody in prison, we didn't feed anybody, and Jesus said, and there you go. Depart from me. So you tell me if this is a very important step in your service to God. It's either remembering them and remembering Christ in the process, or we ignore them and show ourselves to not be truly faithful to God. I'll let you take some time this afternoon to read over those passages of Scripture to figure that out for yourself. But there's a reason why we're to let brotherly love continue, to not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, or to remember those who are in prison, a part of the body of Christ. Fourth thing, let marriage be held in honor among all. The most honorable thing you've got in your life if you're married is your spouse. And the writer of Hebrews says right here, keep it that way. For God will judge sexually immoral and adulterous people. Now this is not a final, I'm going to send you to hell sort of judgment. This is just the consequences that come from living an ungodly life. And before we think that it's either on one side, the, the, the whole televangelist crowd that got messed up and stuff like that, or if it's on the other side where you think it's just big movie moguls here recently that get messed up and stuff like this, it doesn't take long for us to contaminate our minds and our souls with everything that you see on the television or on your computer screen or even in just secret places. There's a reason why Jesus said that even if you start to lust after a woman in your heart, you have already committed adultery. That is not honoring the marriage that you're in. And the way we serve God is to honor the marriage that we have. Fifth thing, keep your life free from love of money. And be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? If you want to know what contentment is, it's a life that is satisfied completely and wholly in the person of Jesus Christ. Does that mean that you don't pursue any endeavor outside of that in this world only if it's going to compete with your trust in Jesus Christ? If you've got a hobby, if you've got a collection, if you've got activities, if you've got some sort of recreation, if you've got some sort of skill that if you were to lose it, you would lose the purpose of your life, then it's too much. The writer of Hebrews says, Make, keep your life free from love of money. Be content with what you have because Jesus has made us a precious promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you. There's nothing that you can lack. There is nowhere that will be so desperate. There is nothing that will be so empty that Jesus Christ is not completely sufficient to help you endure through it. Are you clinging to that today? If you're going to serve him, in a heart of gratitude because of this unshakable kingdom that he's given you access to, you will. That will be the story of your life. Contentment. 
You won't be continually looking for something else, something new, something bolder, something bigger, because Jesus Christ is everything. That's five. We're halfway through, right? Number six. Remember your leaders. Those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and day forever. Some of you have been with Pastor Charlie for over 30 years. And I believe the reason why you are still here after 30 years is not because you're waiting for him to tell a funny joke. Finally. Not that you haven't told any. I haven't been here the whole 30 years. But I have a suspicion it's because you've seen something demonstrated in his life of faith that you want to follow. I believe that because I'm here. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, you need to remember those who are teaching you the Word of God and look at their life. Think about this. And this is intimidating to me. I can't tell you how much it is. Chapter 11, you've got people, Abraham, you've got Moses, you've got a, a list of people that are monumental in their faith. Chapter 11 doesn't end. Now you look at the end of their life and follow after them. At least not in my version. You may have a version that says that. Mine doesn't. But you know what it says about the one who teaches you the Word of God? You need to keep them in your mind. You need to be looking at their life. And they should be what you are following after. Consider the outcome of their way. Consider their end. Now the reason why you can do that is because the Word that they're teaching you is revealing to you who? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ hasn't changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when they teach, when I teach, when people teach you the Word of God, they should be teaching you about Jesus. And since Jesus hasn't changed, that should be what you're looking to follow after. May the grace of God enable Pastor Charlie and me and anyone else who serves as a leader, an elder, a pastor, a teacher in this church to give you leadership of faith that you can follow. Because we are exhorted to remember them. Number seven, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have, before we go any further, just to kind of remind you, back in the book of Leviticus, we have all of these instructions about the sacrifices and what you do with them. Well, once, for most sacrifices, once you offered it, well, you ate of that sacrifice. The readers of the, or the original hearers of this letter would be used to, and probably the reason why this letter is written is to say stop focusing on that tradition because the book is saying Jesus Christ has provided, has provided a better sacrifice stop offering the sacrifice much less eating it so don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings that are going to focus on your sacrifice and what you're going to do with it verse 10 we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat 
For the bodies of those animals whose blood brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice of sin are burned outside the camp. There was a, an offering of atonement every year. An offering of atonement that would be made for all the people. There would be a goat that they would rub the, the blood of this animal on that they were sacrificing and they would let that goat go free. That was a scapegoat. That was to picture that your sins are going far away from you while we're sacrificing on the blood of this goat or this sheep, this lamb for the sins. And once we finish with that, nobody's eating it, we're taking this sacrifice and we're throwing it outside the camp. Well, the writer of Hebrews says, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate. Why? Because He was our Passover. He was our atonement. He suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through His own blood. Jesus Christ was not the scapegoat. Jesus Christ is the one upon whom all of our sins were laid. And when the sacrifice was completed, that was offered outside. That didn't happen outside the holy place. That happened outside because of the sin that it represented. Therefore, let us go outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. If we're going to be identified with Christ and he was set outside as an unholy thing, being crucified for our sins, that's exactly where we go because he is our Lord and our Savior. A little bit different picture than what you hear on television and what you may hear from a lot of radio preachers. They're all about prosperity. They're all about making your life better. Not too many of them are saying, now you go and grab you a bunch of reproach. Because that's what Jesus Christ is going to give you. You're going to identify with his reproach. The world hated him. They're going to hate us. But we are not going to be led away by such teachings that are going to take us away from this true gospel. Because the true gospel, it looks a lot like suffering. A lot like rejection in this world. The writer of Hebrews says, we don't have a lasting city here. Our city is to come. Oh, but I think I like this city over here because at least I can feel good about my accomplishments. I can feel like I've done something good and I feel like I've got a home here and people respect my moral behavior. Hey, Mount Zion's over here. It's through Christ. You haven't refused that, have you? Because to, to lay hold of this one, you've got to go outside the gate too. Because that's where Jesus saves us. He doesn't save us in our self-righteousness. He saves us in our pitiful sinfulness. And we identify with Him there, not to the point where we're groaning in misery, but it's through Him that has let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. The hymns that we sang this morning, <laughs> they talk about our faith in Christ all the way to the end. Praise to God, it is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge His precious name. Number eight, do not neglect to do good and to share with what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Sounds a lot like James chapter 2 to me. But again, it's sharing. Especially when you see your brother who's cold and you're not going to give him your coat. <laughs> brother, you got dead faith. 
You see somebody hungry? Your brother who's, who, who's hungry, you're not going to help him? That's dead faith. Number nine, obey your leaders and submit to them. Same group of people that teach you the Word of God in number, set, uh, number six. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are watching over your souls as those who will have to give an account. If it's not intimidating enough to me as a preacher of the Word of God, as a teacher of the Word of God, to have people expected to follow my example of faith, this intimidates me more. I want to stand before Jesus Christ one day, just as all of you as believers will. But it's just going to be a little bit more strict because he's going to say, you were a teacher, what did you do? What did you do? How did you live? How did you lead them? So this is not just one of those browbeating, hey, you just do what the preacher says. This is to remind you that the preacher is under an immense amount of responsibility before God and accountable to him because of the blood of Jesus Christ. You need to submit and respect and obey them. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1-5 through 5, gives a very sound warning to those who are in leadership. And the number 10, pray for us. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. In other words, this is a prayer for the writer of Hebrews and for anyone who's teaching you the word of God. Pray for us. Even if you didn't write those down, they're in your Bible. I hope that you will seriously consider where you're at in those ten things today. I hope right now. I hope that as I was going through that list, something caught your mind and said, whoa, 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 what, really? Wait a minute, Mark, you usually don't preach about stuff like that. Why are you, why are you talking about that for? I'm glad you didn't, you know, stay there long, you just moved on. But these are not ways in which you're going to earn a position with God. These are not ways in which you're going to garner any type of responsibility. These are just simply things that you do out of gratitude to a God who's given you an unshakable kingdom. That's all. It should be the natural response of a born-again believer to live this way. So that's what we expect. Now, <laughs> may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, Pastor Charlie was preaching about from John 10 a few Sundays ago. By the blood of the eternal covenant, not the old covenant. He's already made a point. The old covenant's no good. The new covenant's what's good. By the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you. God is going to fit you together. God is going to, as if your net was torn apart, He is going to mend it to usefulness again. Equip you with every good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly. <laughs> briefly. Thirteen chapters he's written to us briefly. with my word, with exhortation. 
that last song we sang together, All I Have is Christ. My Lord, I would be yours alone and live so all might see the strength to follow your commands could never come from me. Oh, Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose. Well, guess what? He just chose it for us right here. If you're struggling with finding God's will for your life, look no further. It's not complicated. You might want more answers. You might want more detail. You might want more specifics. But God's will is clearly taught in God's word. We've just looked at ten things. That if you have by faith received this unshakable kingdom, these are ten things you need to be busy about doing. These are ten things that should be part of my life. If all you have is Christ. Now if you've got a little bit of Christ, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, then maybe there's something you need to deal with today. But I would implore you today don't let these words fall short. Don't turn away. What I'd like for you to do with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, would you stand with me? Brother Richard's going to come. And we're going to sing a song that's going to recognize our dependence on Jesus Christ. That If we're going to do this, He's going to have to hold us fast. But what I would like to do today that may be a little bit different than what you're accustomed to or maybe what we do on a regular basis. Not that every sermon isn't serious in itself. But you just heard words inspired by the Holy Spirit to not turn away. So I would like for you to take consideration not of what you're going to do for lunch, not what you're going to do this afternoon, what you're going to do this evening, what you've got planned for this week. I would like for you in the solemnness of this moment while Amy begins to play, I would like for you just to consider what are you clinging to today? If you have things that were part of those ten items listed, I encourage you to do business with the Lord today. That could mean you come down to forward to the altar. If you want to make a public demonstration of your dependence on God, you're welcome to do that. You're not obligated to do that. You're more than welcome to however God moves in your life right now to do service for Him today. It's not for Pastor Charlie. It's not for the Southern Baptist Convention. It's not for the United States of America. It's for the Lord and Savior who gave His blood for you. That you have been called to live a life of endurance, pursuing the prize that's only found in Jesus Christ.